Welcome to the Green Ranine Publishing Podcast. Since the year 2000, Green Ranine has been at the forefront of the hobby game industry. This podcast brings that world to life with news, interviews, and opinions direct from the Emerald City. Join us as we talk about role-playing games, card games, conventions, game design, and all things Green Ronin. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Green Ronin podcast. This is Chris Premis, and uh, I'm hosting today's show with my special guests, uh, Nicole Lindrews, who is Green Ronin's general manager, and our first return guest, Eric Mona of Paizo Publishing. Say hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, We are recording this show on May 17th, and uh, our topic today is largely going to be uh, the open game license and the new game system license and how that has gone over the last six months, what's happened, what we might expect, what we think about the whole thing. There will be a fair amount of sort of business-oriented talk, so if you're looking for something more game designy, this maybe is not the episode for you. Um, But, you know, it's important stuff in the industry, and uh, there's few people who have the kind of experience in this area that we all have, so uh, we hope it's worth listening to. So, Eric, uh, we had you on the show back in September, uh, right after Gen Con. And uh, Gen Con was the first time that Wizards of the Coast talked about what their plans were for 4th edition and open gaming. Um, So I think what I'd like to do is just sort of give our listeners a kind of summation of what has happened since then. Wow, what's happened since (laughs) September? (laughs) So it started with, uh, at Gen Con, uh, Wizards had a open kind of seminar. Uh, They invited publishers and fans to to kind of talk about their ideas about open gaming. And the first question was, will there be open gaming at all? And they said that there would. Um, And we thought that they might actually tell us the plan at that point. But basically, they were looking for feedback. And so a bunch of people went to that seminar, talked about many issues involving the current open game license. Uh, And then after Gen Con, we waited for Wizards to decide how exactly they wanted to move forward. So then flash forward to January. In January, um, they announced that they were going to be having a two-tier structure where uh, early adopters could pay a $5,000 fee to get a developer's kit, and those publishers could start publishing uh, basically for Gen Con. And Actually, for free RPG Day, too. Right, that's right. Um, people who didn't want to pay that money could then uh, hold off, and they could start publishing in 2008. Um, at the time, it sounded like we'd be able to see this license and even the rules within a matter of weeks. And then many months went by. (laughs) Yes. Um, And then finally in uh, April, I guess it was, uh, there was another announcement that they were changing the plan and that there was not going to be a fee, um, but that anyone could start publishing in October. Um, And the license was going to come out the same time as the books, which is June 6th. Which is in about two weeks. Yeah. So this is the first 
in about two weeks deadline since the beginning of this thing that I think is actually going to happen. Which is exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. At least we know the books uh, are going to come out in <laughs> early June. <laughs> yes, they uh, they had some books on display at Gamma Trade Show, so we can confirm that they exist. So those will be coming out on June 6th. And um, supposedly the new license, which is called the Game System License, uh, is going to be debuted that day as well. Now, interestingly, um, it, this is not the Open Game License Part 2. This is a wholly separate thing that seemingly does not interact with the open game license in any way. Well, in fact, it is exclusive. Right. Uh, right. By using the new game system license, you basically agree not to use the open game license, from what I understand. And I should probably make it clear to the, to the listeners that none of us, nor in fact anybody else, perhaps outside of Wizards of the Coast, has actually seen the terms of the game system license. We have a pretty good idea of what they are. Um, there have been a number of scenarios during that whole period between September and basically now, um, some of which were a lot lamer, frankly, than what it looks like it's going to be now. Um, so, yeah. So, still, I think there's some questions Indeed. up in the air. But it does appear as though... Uh, it will be on a product line by product line basis. So That's a company right. could have, just to use Green Ronin as an example, if you wanted to adopt, uh, so let's say you wanted to launch a new line of fourth edition compatible products, you would be able to do that without jeopardizing Mutants and Masterminds, which is based on the, the open game license. Right. And that's a and change since April. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I think uh, one that actually means that professional publishers in the RPG business have a chance to support Wizards of the Coast, because otherwise I, I don't know of any publisher, and I've talked to almost all of them, who was interested in any way in basically destroying all of their back stock and, you know, yeah. turning their back on their existing customers just well, to try and fetch. actually the back stock issue, if that is still on the table, because as we understand it, the D20 system trademark license, which is not the same thing as the open game license, right. that, that is going to is going to expire right. on the launch date of, of fourth edition and that we will have until the end of this year to sell or otherwise dispose of any products that have the old D20 logo on them. Yes, and you'll notice that um, since Paizo started producing its own you know, uh, RPG products independent of the official license that we had to do Dragon and Dungeon magazine uh, at the end of the last year, uh, we published no products with the D20 license on it because, again, um, clearly there was a, a termination clause in that. Whereas the, the, OG, the OGL, the open game uh, license, was open-ended, uh, right. meaning that, as a publisher, meaning that I get to decide when I stop making those products. Yeah. Uh, the D20 license, sort of as a trade-off for the, you know, you can't see finger quotes over the podcast, but I'm going to say the value of having that D20 logo on your product, you ceded the right to, to be able to be the one to make that decision. Right. And Wizards could make that decision for you. And I think it was always an open question. You know, would they do that at the launch of 4th edition? Would they continue to use the D20 mm -hmm. logo through 4th edition? You know, when exactly was that going to happen? But it was obvious to me when I started looking at what we were going to do for Paizo... Um, that, that that could happen. Now, it's very different from the calculus you guys had to make, of course, because you were right there at the very, very right. beginning. Right, yeah. We have products system. that go way it back. Absolutely. And we came in really kind of Johnny-come-lately to this whole thing. And mm -hmm. at the time when a lot of other companies, uh, 3.0 and 3.5 compatible lines are kind of winding down in anticipation of 4th edition, we sort of launched 
when Pathfinder. You've seen the um, the evidence that the D20 logo had lost some of its value. Yeah, I mean, uh, one already. of the major distributors, uh, who I won't name, but a couple of years ago even, this was three years ago, told me that that was basically a scarlet letter, that the distributors were not going to order products right. with that logo on them. And so, you see, I mean, Mongoose was one of the companies that started doing it. You guys did it, uh, I think, in a trend-setting way with Mutes and Masterminds. Just don't put the D20 logo on right. there, you know. Um, frankly, some of the, there are some system limitations to use, use of the D20 logo that don't exist with the, the open game system. So, if the distributors are telling you that the logo is not very valuable, and the customers, by the fact that they're not buying products, are telling us all that the logo is not as useful as it might once have been, it seems like there's little point in using that logo. And again, since September, when we had the meeting in uh, in August at Gen Con, they were very clear that there would be a D20 logo, but yeah. that was not... Well, there is a new D20 logo yeah. that's kind of floating around that I've seen. It, the only place I've really seen it in print is on the back of a miniatures package. Yeah, I don't know. Is that if, Has that been claimed officially? At, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know, right? Oh, I mean, well, I don't know what relationship that logo has to, say, the GSL. Right. Or, you know, we, I don't know that. But, but well, I mean, even, if, even until this spring, it was, it was conceivable that, that D20, the D20 logo would, would still be a valid mm-hmm, option mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that it was not going to be retired. That's kind of. That's I guess kind of what I'm decision. trying to say is that I'm very happy that another company is not telling me that I need to pulp all of my books. Absolutely. Yes. Well, yeah. so it's not that I expected that, you know, into 2010 I was going to be selling a lot of shaman's handbooks anymore. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, right. The place that it is um, a little less awesome for us is our licensed stuff because we have things like Black Company and Thieves World, where people who just like those properties are still buying those books just for the world material. You know, right. the Thieves World Gazetteer has a bunch of material straight from Lynn Abbey all about the world of Thieves World that isn't in print anywhere else. Right. And, and I, I would uh, enjoy continuing <laughs> to sell that to people. Right, and ironically, in some sense, at least to that customer, mm-hmm. the least important element of that product being the rules is the thing that is tied to this logo, which is going right. to force you guys to have to make a, perhaps, to have to make a difficult decision on what to do with that yeah. outstanding product. One thing that we didn't mention uh, that has come out is that there's ultimately, apparently, going to be two licenses. There's the game system license, right. which covers basically D&D support, and which has been pretty clear that what they want people to do is support fantasy role-playing with adventures and source books and that kind of thing. And then at some indeterminate period, probably three, four years from now, they're going to do the new edition of D20 Modern, and at that point then there will be another sort of D20 license that allows you to do non-fantasy support material that will build off of presumably D20 Modern. Right. One of the things that I'm... You know, honestly, since we made the Pathfinder uh, announcement, which we can talk about a little bit later, but mm-hmm. the upshot being uh, whatever happens with the GSL is irrelevant to Paizo's main brand because right. we're sticking with the eternally open, the eternally chart your own destiny open game license instead of something that I firmly believe will be closed the minute 5th edition is announced. <laughs> um, so uh, so we're, you know, it's it's become sort of an academic game to me where I'm just kind of watching for the little corner cases and things. And one of the things that's most interesting to me is how exactly is Wizards going to differentiate between what is a fantasy game and what is not a fantasy game. Yes. Because frankly, uh, there's a reason they shelf 
science fiction and fantasy books together in bookstores because there's a very big gray area between those those things and with horror and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, will the it'll be very interesting to see. You know, could you do a setting sort of like the um, uh, I forget what the D twenty modern um, urban arcana urban arcana mm -hmm. right? So could you do an, a modern day game with elves and trolls and dwarves? You know, is that science fiction or is that horror or is that fantasy or what you know and and yeah. could you do that with the gsl could you do something akin to Shadowrun? you know with the gsl with laser guns and computers and you know i just it's so weird that there's that there's apparently a delineation between between genre which is largely a subjective thing in a legal document which is predicated on being largely objective so i'm very very interested in seeing how yes. they split that or hair. something like uh like edgar rice burroughs right stuff right? sword and planet is yeah, a great so, example yeah it's like is is the mars stuff is that fantasy or is it science fiction? right well in fact it sort of predates both yeah you know in its publishing history so but i'm sure that publishing history will not be one of the criteria you know? <laughs> well in fact it's it's another you know potentially legally troublesome area is this whole by game line thing right right so i mean what is a game line when you get down to it is it going to be like that the definition of pornography of i know it when i see it right you and, know? and and who's yeah. the one who's deciding right? right i mean on one level and i totally appreciate this perspective it seems like a lot of what wizards was trying to go into certainly out of the meeting at, at gen con i thought it was very clear that one of the criteria that they were really looking for was something that didn't require anybody at Wizards to spend an enormous amount of time yeah. evaluating other other companies' right. products. And yeah, it's obvious why that. they wouldn't yeah. want to do that. I mean, that costs resources, that's expensive. The, if it's anything like 3rd edition was, they're going to have dozens of companies, many of whom are not even formed yet by people who have never worked in the industry. You know, There will be companies that flood the market with this stuff, and Wizards justifiably doesn't want to have to look at every single product to mm -hmm. make sure that it, you know, uh, now obviously if it violates their community standards, it's more likely that that product would kind of come to their attention from people complaining or what have you. But, um, but if they don't want to vet every single product for appropriateness, you know, to use the logo or the GSL or what have you, well, then who's going to vet every single product line yeah. from every single PDF publisher and all that kind of stuff? I think it's going to be tough. I think it's an interesting challenge for Wizards of the Coast. But for the most part, yeah, I mean, if we start a new 4E line, fine, that's a line. Yeah. But where it becomes more troublesome is something like Freeport, where now we've set Freeport up where we have a systemless core book, The Pirate's Guide to Freeport. And then we've done now a series of these different rules companions so that you can use Freeport with a variety of systems. So we've done the True 20 Freeport companion, the D21, and just recently in PDF form, we did the Savage Worlds one. So it would make sense for us to do a fourth edition Freeport companion. Right. But if Freeport is going to count as a line, and I then have to choose uh, taking the D20 and True 21s out of print if I want to do a fourth edition one, that's not really a choice that I care to make, you know. Well, and frankly, it's probably not a choice you can make. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's if your core business is True Twenty and you know all that, you don't want to turn your back on your core business to support another company's product. No, not at all. And you know, in that period when it seemed like we might have to pick as a company between using the open game license, which is what is used by both True Twenty and Mutants and Masterminds, or the GSL for the you know as yet untested fourth edition, uh, that wasn't. A choice. I mean, of course, we were going to stick with mutants and masterminds and True Twenty before you know throwing our entire company's 
future into the hands of we don't know what yet. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, of all the ups and downs and twists and turns that we all have been experiencing with this whole um, uh, affair, uh, the thing I think that, that makes me most pleased, the best news of this whole thing, other than that there is, in fact, going to be a no-cost agreement by which you can publish material to support the most famous and, you know, most popular RPG in history uh, is that change. The change from, you know, the, it's either, you know, you're either with us or against us kind of thing. You know, it's the whole company supports this game that none of us will see until it actually street dates. Or um, it's by product line, which is much, much more reasonable. Because frankly, if 4th edition is the improvement that in many respects it needs to be, you know, for Hasbro... Uh, then the game will be very, very popular. And so if I've got a line of Pathfinder stuff, say, on one side, and then I have a new line of, you know, dungeon exploration modules or whatever that, that support 4th edition, well, if those new, if that new line sells in excess of my old line... Absolutely. Obviously, the I'm going to start... Made, yeah, right. right. I'm going to start shifting my, my resources over to uh, the, the new line. And then, you know, more and more of... Paizo's resources are going to supporting Wizards of the Coast. And just to be clear, I don't really have an objection to supporting Wizards of the Coast. In many ways, uh, we have been doing that all along with our products. Um, what I have an objection to is uh, stopping production on successful game lines that employ 26 people. Right, mm -hmm. right. In Austin. order to just jump on to a new game that, um, that I have not been allowed to see as yeah. of yet. You know, well, so I, no thanks. I have and I'm to, glad we don't have to make that decision is what I'm trying to say. I, I, I would have to think that after your experience of, of being a licensee of Wizards with the magazines, right. you ha have a, a better perspective than a lot of people on exactly what happens when they decide they want something different. Yeah. And, and that's how it's going to be with the GSL. There are termination clauses and things that didn't exist in right, the OGL. Right, right. And it's really easy to, you know, I mean, I... <laughs> This is something that I've been dealing with sort of on a personal level for the last few years. I, I, I strongly believe that people who really put themselves into their work are better at what they do. The end product mm -hmm. is better. And, you know, uh, I, I was confident in the quality of the Dragon and Dungeon magazines that we were producing. And ultimately, I believe, or at least I hope, uh, the decision to bring the magazine brands in-house to use it as part of their D&D Insider, uh, was a strategic business decision. Right. It's hard not to feel like it's a personal decision and like there's, you know, oh, but you used to be my friend and all that kind of right. stuff. And you do go through that. But, you know, I am a much different person as a publisher of Paizo as I was when I was just an editor working on the magazines. And it's easier for me to look at the business issue and say, okay, from a certain perspective, I can fully understand why Wizards of the Coast would want to do that. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the business, business is business. And so without even speculating on who the decision maker might be when it comes time to transition from fourth to fifth edition, you have to, as a responsible business person, at least plan for the worst, which right, is to say right. that, you know, no one, I don't know when fifth edition's coming out. I don't know who's going to, there are people at Wizards that I trust. You know, there. Mm -hmm. I think Scott Rouse has done a great job in in you know really listening to the publishers and kind of 
modifying the GSL I so totally that it agree. serves Wizards' goals, but that it, it doesn't cripple the third-party publishers who support, after all, they could really use yeah. to help transition their audience. So I, I like Scott just to, to use him as an example, but I don't know that Scott is going to be working at Wizards of the Coast in six years right. or seven years. I don't know whose decision it's going to be. I don't know what the lay of the land or the lay of the industry is going to be. I frankly don't know what my business is going to look like. Well, the, the bottom line is, if you sign on to a, a project like with the GSL, right, um, it, and the 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 control is with someone else, with somebody else, it's and not even somebody else you know necessarily. Right. It could, I mean, the person in charge of D and D has shifted, I think, four times since I joined the industry in 1999. Right, so it's foolish to assume that it's not going to change two or three or four times again before somebody has to make that call. And I can guarantee you that the person who makes that call of when to close the 4th edition GSL and what to do about a 5th edition GSL, they're going to make that decision, as they should, on the merits of what it means for Wizards of the Coast business, right, not exactly. what it means for Green Arnie exactly. or what it means for Paizo. So I have to like try to pull all the emotion, you know, all of the, oh my God, they made the succubus a devil and all that <laughs> kind of stuff that, that you know, that kind of stirs up the, the emotion. And you got to try to look at it kind of like a robot and look at it as objectively as possible. And objectively, um, there are risks to getting involved with a license that can be revoked. Yeah, and yeah, I've lived yeah. through a couple of those risks in the last couple of years. Exactly. So, yeah. So you know, for good or ill, that's been an education experience that has really colored how we want to move forward as a company. Any publisher who's going to use the GSL to publish fourth edition com- compatible material, they have to go into it with their eyes open and know that they could wake up on any day, and that whole thing could be over. And you know, there's you. <laughs> it's a risk reward thing. If right. you think, you know. You can make enough money that that's worth the risk, then you go for it. But you you right. can't, you know, if that day ever comes, you know, you just have to be ready for it. And the, and I think the the genius, if you will, of the current version of the GSL. By that I mean the one that we all kind of have in our heads because we haven't actually seen it, and it could change again, I suppose. But I don't think it will. the The beauty of that is that. Because it's on a product line by product line basis, we don't all have to gamble our entire company right. on the issue. Yeah, yeah, that was a really good so. move on their part to to make that happen, because it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to sign on, you know, to risk your staff and mm-hmm. and the stability you've built up right. to to just throw it all aside. Well, but it's already, I mean, the the delays between, you know. The, when this was first discussed at Gen Con till today, um, I mean, they did force a lot of companies to have to make some tough decisions. You know, you guys probably most of all, but, you know, other companies as well, you know, who who didn't necessarily have uh, lines like Mutants and Masterminds. And, you know, like, we have Mutants and Masterminds, we have True 20, we have the Song of Ice and Fire game that's coming out this summer that uses no license, you know, right. uh, other than the one from George Martin, but it's, you know, it's a new system, it's, we can do whatever we want with it, it's beholden to no one, you know, like, we have that, and, you know, anything else that we do is just in addition to that core business, but there are some other companies whose whole business was supporting D&D, and they were sort of left out there to, you know, try to make plans with a lot of uncertainty, Now, you guys ultimately decided to uh, to chart your own course with Pathfinder. Yep. Um, you want to talk a little bit about how you came to that? Well, decision? yeah. I mean, we always, uh, once we, 
once we kind of knew there was going to be a fourth edition, which was pretty early uh, mm -hmm. in the process, we had to raise all those questions about what, you know, what do we think is going to happen with the OGL, mm -hmm. you know, what, you know, how, it, will there be decisions that Wizards makes about the sort of the shape and the flavor and the smell of the game that will create a potential for a marketplace for something other than just going along with the flow? You know, all of the different factors we had to start to consider. And so I basically started charting out two paths, you know, for Paizo. And one of them was basically assuming that the GSL, well, at that time we were calling it the OGL because right. we hadn't heard the GSL. And the yeah. assumption was that it was largely going to be the same. And so uh, not knowing that, that not being confirmed, so one of the, the, the possible futures for Paizo was to just basically keep going. You know, we have been to date, I think we do a good job of... Uh, of creating material that is very much in the spirit of Dungeons and Dragons uh, under the OGL. Um, so we could just continue to do that, but with the new rules. Um, the other option, of course, was to stick with the current version of mm -hmm. the rules. And, you know, there is a sort of strategic element of that that we discussed a little bit earlier about being masters of our own destiny and, and being frankly skeptical, you know, that Wizards was not going to want to stuff the genie back in the bottle at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we did a lot of planning on both on both lines because the thing that we didn't want was to be caught with our pants down once the decision was basically ready to be made. And so um, we ultimately made the decision um, to stick with the 3.5 rules. Um, but even that decision was complicated by the fact that in June the 3.5 core rule books are going out of print. Yep. You know, they'll still be available at half price books and things like that, but I don't think it's a particularly strong sales strategy for a publishing mm -hmm. company to say, okay, first thing you do is to go to a used bookstore <laughs> and try and find these three books. So, given that reality and given the reality that there are elements after eight years of experience with the 3.0 and 3.5 rules, there are elements of the system that could use some tweaking. And once it became clear that the kind of tweaking that Wizards was talking about with 4th edition was a much more radical uh, change. It's more of a culling than <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, that certainly was the way it appeared earlier on and, and created a lot of, uh, I think, frustration, you know, among heavily entrenched hardcore fans of the game, many of whom also happened to fit the customer profile of Dungeon & Dragon subscribers, so people who are already buying Paizo products, people who are already coming to our website, and people who, frankly, were kind of ready for another alternative other than going with the company, you know, going with Wizards of the Coast for whatever reason. So um, so we had to basically look at all those factors, and we had to say, okay, how do we make a game that you can't buy a core rulebook for? So we said, we've got to do a core rulebook for the game. Um, but, you know, do we want to put that out, you know, at Gen Con this year and compete head-to-head -head with the the D&D? Yeah. Or do we want to, you know, take the time that the project of that magnitude really deserves and maybe get it out next year? If we put it out next year, how do we, you know, keep people interested? And then most importantly, how do we do it in such a way that the existing community of folks, both people who are not interested in converting to 4th edition for whatever reason and people who are just, you know, hey, whatever the game is, I'll play it as long as the adventures are cool. Um... We had to uh, figure out how to keep people's interest on that. 
and how to make it a game that they'd want. And, and luckily we were able to do both of those things by introducing this free open play test of the, the alpha and then eventually the beta version of the rules. And so we started by releasing alpha releases that included the first one was four of the core classes and some of the combat rules and things like that, addressing things like grapple and you know some of the bugaboos that people don't like about, about D&D. And uh, we now uh, will be releasing on... Um, in a couple of days here, probably already available by the time this goes mm-hmm. online, uh, the Alpha, what we're calling the Alpha 3 release. And so all of a sudden the Alpha book is now about, I think, about 200 pages long. Mm-hmm. And it's all fully laid out with color art and everything, but we're giving it away as a free PDF. And then uh, there have been more than, uh, pr- approaching about 20,000 people who've downloaded that so far. And all, not all of those people are participating in the open play test, but many, many of them are. And so we've seen our um, uh, signups on Paizo.com really explode with people who are very interested in being involved in not you know, a closed play test, which is sort of the traditional method in the, in the industry, but a really an open play test where everybody's participating together, everybody's talking, everybody's sharing their ideas. And, um, and we've been you know, solicitous of their comments and, and making changes as we go based on you know, some of the suggestions that we've received from our readers. So that's basically what's happening. And then at, at Gen Con this year and also on Paizo.com um, and the, uh, even at, through the retail channel, uh, readers will be able to buy a print version of what we're calling the beta, which is all three of the alpha releases plus some more stuff plus some changes that we've gotten from the community. And that'll be released in August, uh, and that's going to be like a 300-some page book. And full color, I think it's 25 bucks if you want to buy the book, but we'll also release the entire thing as a free PDF. So the playtest continues, and we'll keep getting more feedback, we'll keep working and tinkering on the system ourselves, um, and then we'll release the final book in August of 2009, so next year's Gen Con. And at that point, all of Paizo's products from then forward will be Pathfinder RPG instead yeah. of just sort of generic 3.5. I was uh, I was impressed that your alpha stuff was actually laid out and had nice art and all. I expected yeah. when I downloaded it, it was going to be basically like a text file of, you know, here's our playtest rules, check them out. And well, yeah, I mean, what we want to do is that we want to show people that we're serious about this, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and we want people to playtest the rules as if they were the rules, you know, and the best way to do that is to pre- present it in the context that they're used to seeing, you know, with art and mm-hmm. pictures and I think and it's a great out. strategy. Yeah, yeah. It's very so. smart. And it, it, seems to be, it seems to be working. You know, I mean, people are very excited about it. Of course, it's not everybody's cup of tea, and there are some folks who sight unseen have committed to 4th edition. There are some yeah. folks who, you know, the big question is, like, does it stray too far? Because we are making some improvements and adjustments to the rules. You know, how compatible really is it going to be is it backwards compatible i hear that concern raised a lot mm-hmm. and i mean backwards compatibility is is a primary goal of the project it's not the only goal of the project yeah. you know if i'm going to invest literally tens of thousands of dollars in reprinting the core rules of the game you can be damn sure that we're going to fix some of the stuff that is not does not work correctly yeah. but that is a minority of stuff it is not the whole game is hideously broken or anything in fact I think that the the launch of a new edition of D&D has a lot less to do with how broken and how lame the game is than it has to do with uh, how sales maybe have been of the game and the fact that they've done kind of all of the boilerplate, you know, the fighter book and the mm-hmm. elf book and all that, all the kind of high volume 
stuff has been done. And so, you know, when you're looking at how to reinvigorate your publishing business, well, you could reinvent the wheel again. It worked really well in 3.5, but I don't think it's because of the game, you know, you see some folks online just, oh, 3.5 is just fundamentally broken. The math underlying the system is completely ruined and it totally sucks. It needs to be rebuilt. I don't buy that. And I don't think a lot of other, you know, I think there are a lot of other gamers who don't buy that either and who have no intention of giving up not just their library of 3.0 and 3.5 books, which if you've got everything, I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars and whole bookshelves. So they're not just don't want to give up that, but they don't want to give up frankly, some of the conceits that have lasted in the game from the 70s all the way to the to the mid 2000s, you know, 2000s. So, well, and the basic mastery of what is D&D. Right. Some of the, the details are fiddly. You can change grapple, for example, and right. how that works right. without needing to feel like you have to remaster the entire balance yeah, of the game. Yeah, right. I mean, there's a lot of folks who... Uh, you know, one of the reasons that Pathfinder and before that Dungeon Magazine did so well for us is that as the traditional audience of D&D gets older and older, these are folks who now have children, these are folks who have careers, they don't have all the time that they might have had when they were in grade school to, you know, fill notebooks with ideas about mm-hmm. adventures and maps and stuff like that. And in the same, by the same token, I'm not 100% sure that they, that all of those players really want to sit down and reinvent the wheel and, and start from ground zero. Well, one of the reasons that, that D&D has retained its preponderance is that um, it was easy to find people to play D&D because yeah. almost everyone started with it. Um, and that a lot of people, once they learn D&D, they just didn't want to go through the trouble of learning a whole other yeah, system. Yeah, I mean, I encounter that all the time. Yeah. And the, the, the big question, I think, for wizards and for, you know, certainly for all of us to some degree, is what is it like, what is the underlying strength of the player network? Because, I mean, clearly D&D's competitive advantage um, is the player network. It's that everybody's played it. It's that it's the entry-level game for everyone. It's the game that you can get at Barnes & Noble. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't need to get deeply enmeshed in the in the hobby to even discover that the game exists, right? Like some of the independent games, which might be fun games, but they're not in people's face. So the fact that you can get together a D&D game, whether you're on a college campus or you know where you're at, um, I think is its greatest competitive strength. But the question is, what's underlying the network? Is it something to do with the rules system and the organic nature of the rules and you know just once you've memorized even once you memorize second edition or first edition you could kind of get how to play third edition without too much problem um, and because I haven't read the rules yet on fourth edition uh, it's going to be interesting to see is it the brand name of Dungeons and Dragons that underlines the value mm-hmm. the value of the the player network or is it you know the the sort of institutional rules knowledge. Many many people, both inside and outside the industry, say, "Well, the best way to learn how to play D anD D is to just sit in in a group and have somebody show you how to play D anD D." You know, it doesn't, to some degree, matter whether or not the rule book is easy to understand. I mean, first edition rule book was not easy to understand. No. You know, but almost all of us played it uh, because someone we knew explained how the game works. So, will that transition from third to fourth? be like the transition from first to second or the transition from second to third where the, the player network basically went along with it and because it was similar enough understood the core concepts and so they only really had to change their knowledge a little bit and they were right back on the bus. My sense from what we've seen of fourth edition 
on a rules side is that it's different enough that I think that they're um, really challenging that for the first time ever. Well, and at the same time, they're killing a lot of the sacred cows and a lot of the yeah. sort of setting stuff. And and um, and I'm, that's that's a potentially dangerous combination for them. The thing that you know I must say, Wizards has got a great staff of super creative people. They have business people who have probably been having conversations with exactly like this four years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. these are not issues that they haven't thought about. So I trust that they've got marketing strategies and uh, secret plans and online <laughs> initiatives or what have you, you know, to ease, the, no to ease, secret plans. Well, to ease the transition. Yeah. One way, ironically, they could help to, to ease the transition is by bringing in third-party support. And I think that they've done a lot of the right things in order to ensure that happening, whereas if I had this interview two months ago, I would not have said that. Well, of course, you could also argue that they've could have had a lot more help if they had had brought us in a lot earlier than they did. No, I think that's absolutely true. I suspect that there are people at Wizards of the Coast who are intimately involved with the GSL who would agree with that statement. You yeah. know, I mean, I think that as with any large corporation, you've got lots of stakeholders, mm-hmm. you've got lots of people with different agendas, some of which have to do with you know the betterment of the game that everybody loves, some of which have to do with the betterment of personal careers and all that kind of stuff. And just from having worked at Wizards, you know, in '99 to 2003, I can't imagine like decisions at a smaller company that I might be able to make personally, or that you know you might just have a conversation with Nicole real quickly and come up with what your strategy is going to be. They would need to be signed off by marketing people oh, yeah. and you know senior management and you know, um, uh, the, the designers who are actually going to do this stuff. I mean, there's probably hour, two hour long meetings to agree and build consensus on a minor decision that would take a smaller company 10 minutes to make the decision. In fact, I once began to tinker with a card game, um, uh, like the big idea, uh, which was meant to riff off of some of the, uh, the cheap-ass games, like the big cheese, because uh, Nicole was working at cheap-ass games at the time. Um, that was sort of about that process of you have a big idea and the gameplay was, you know, trying to get all the departments to sign off on your big idea. Right. To get the marketing people and the sales people right. and, you know, R&D and so on. And I mean, it's not, it's not a, it could be that once you get all 10 people in the room, the decision you come up with is better mm-hmm. than the decision that one person might have made. But when you just think of the sheer amount of time and effort and yeah. energy it goes toward building a consensus at a corporation... That is a lot of, you know, they clearly have had this, these discussions is what I'm trying to say. Right. And the thing, the weird thing about D&D is that um, it's not just a case of what's, there's what's good for Wizards as a company. Right. There's what's good for D&D as a game. Right. Um, and, but there's also, you know, you have to kind of at least think about what's good for role playing as a whole because of the unique place of D&D. You know, most people start gaming by playing D&D. And so, you know, if 4th edition, for example, does not do a good job of appealing to new or casual players, that has a ripple-down effect on the rest of the industry. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've often wondered is with the demise of Dragon Magazine, the surefire way of advertising or getting, you know, public relations about a product, absolutely, you know, by a company other than Wizards of the Coast to the greater network of D&D players is mm-hmm. completely evaporated. Yeah. And it's and I don't have a sense of what, if any, the impact of that has actually been. But it's not something that, you know, my understanding is that there's not going to be outside advertising on, you know, the D&D right. Insider and stuff like that. So my sense is that Wizards of the Coast is 
uh, focus a little bit more on you know the, the what's good for D and D as a brand and what's good for Wizards of the Coast than they are on what's good for the industry. You know, with some exceptions, my sense is that the, the folks at D and D, or the, certainly within the RPG R and D department at D and D, really see that there's D and D up here, mm-hmm. and then down here there's the RPG industry, and that that they only sort of look like each other, but they aren't necessarily part of the same thing. I've wondered about that because, I mean, I think I, I can sense a strong argument from that that side right. that the rest of us down below don't really, we're not, we're not really part of Yeah, things. well, I mean, they... I, I just wonder if that's true. Like, if we all really did evaporate and go away, and there right. was no nobody was doing indie games, no there was game no stores. There was no game. Well, so so what do the game stores do? Do they carry only D and D because that's the only game in town mm-hmm. now, and then nothing else? Well, I mean, I think how successful is that as a strategy for a, for a retail store? I uh, think there are a lot of retail stores that only carry D and D. You know, I mean, I, I run into them frequently. And we get into some of those stores because of the association that Paizo's had with that D&D audience. And so the audience is asking for it. And, and most clever retailers, when the audience asks for something, will start to stock it. But, you know, I think there are a lot of stores that don't carry. Uh, you know, it used to be when I was a kid in Minneapolis, I could go to two or three different stores that would have all of the vampire supplements, sort all of, of the, the Shadowrun, yeah, the Phoenix Games. Phoenix and, games. Which I understand is now just an online operation, yeah. but but you know, and, and the source is still there, yeah. and they and they still do that. But I think they're and they're probably, in my experience, they're the best game store in the country. I mean, they're my favorite game store. I've source ever is awesome. Yeah. yeah, and they've got you know full miniatures lines mm-hmm. on every wall. They've got numerous you know product lines from different companies. But I really think that's the rarity. I think what we saw in the late '90s or mid '90s, I guess, was a lot of those stores started transitioning into collectible card game yeah, stores yeah. because the, pro, the the inventory turned so much faster. They, it was a phenomenon, yeah, kind of like yeah. D&D was in the 80s, yeah. and they were able to make so much more money um, and distribute. It really changed the way the distribution thing worked in this industry as well, where the distributors, you know, I wasn't working in the industry in the mid-90s, but my understanding from talking to the people who were is that the, there were, first of all, there were more than two... Yeah. meaningful oh, uh, distributors yeah, yeah. and and not to say that the small guys are not also meaningful but they're a lot more regional and, yeah no and I, what have I, you. there were national distributors each of whom had their sales staff and all that so you had an opportunity if maybe one distributors buyer didn't wasn't so hot in your game you maybe had two or three other ones who might pick up on it and then if it created a buzz then then maybe the other distributor would jump on well that's a lot harder to pull off now um, and so a lot of stores, I think, do just carry D&D. And then there are a lot of, a lot of uh, bigger stores like Barnes & Noble and, and Borders and things like that who have an RPG section that is either totally dominated by D&D with a few you know, other products or is exclusively dominated by D&D or ha- is gone. I mean, a lot of yeah. those RPG sections in those big stores have become manga sections. Yes. You know, and, yeah. and th- it is not unusual these days to find uh, a, a big store with no RPG product in it. And then worse than that even sometimes is because D&D books rank second only to the beat poets uh, when it comes to people stealing books. A lot of stores will put the D&D or the RPG books behind the counter where you have to ask for them specially. Yeah. And I can't imagine that that sells a lot of product. So I do think 
that there is some validity to saying that there's D&D and then there's everything else because I'll tell you I could sell a, I could put out a book and sell 10,000 copies and that could be considered a phenomenal success oh yeah you know um, if Wizards of the Coast put out a book that sold 10,000 copies it would be seen as a phenomenal failure so they really are op- operating on an order of magnitude removed from the rest of us to a degree, I mean, yes, on like the real big selling stuff, yeah. you know, they will sell hundreds of thousands of copies of the fourth edition core books. Yeah, no stuff. question. But particularly, you know, once the initial rush, you know, goes away and they start getting, you know, I'm, apparently the plan is to release a hardback book every month, which is pretty different than how third edition launched, where they were doing fewer books in the hopes of selling more of each one. Right, but how um, different is it than how 3.5 turned out? Well, I not. Mean, I mean, yeah. it was 3.5. Yeah. That's when things, you know, they're clearly there was a point where they decided that their publishing strategy for 3.0 wasn't working the way they wanted it right. to. Because they began to crank up and release a lot more well, stuff. Well, they stopped doing black and white products. They and, did. You know. But anyway, my point was that, you know, that Wizards has done and will do books that sell 10,000, 20,000 copies. You right. know, they're, they're not immune to that either. No, and, but I think that there's much more likely to be selling products that sell. 20,000 than yeah, 10,000. Sure. And they're much more likely to sell products that do 10 or 20,000 than they are to 3,000. Oh, and yeah. I think that a lot of smaller RPG companies, uh, frankly, I think a lot of companies that aren't called Wizards of the Coast are selling 1,000 to three to 4,000 copies of their products these days. Yeah. Or less. Or less. You yeah. know, and yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> See, what I find funny is, you know, like on the top, there's Wizards, and, uh, you know, I. Some of the people there probably have no use for the rest of us. Right. Uh, certainly, that's I'm I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Wizards as a whole. There's many many people there who certainly right. see the industry as a holistic place. But you know, there are people who feel like we don't matter. Um, and you know, then there's like the sort of the middle range companies of you know White Wolf and and you know Green Redeem and Paizo and so on. Right. And and then you know there's the smaller companies. Who also some of them feel like they don't have anything in common with big companies like Paizo. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and yeah, I'm, that's and a good I'm point. Like, okay, so apparently I'm both the man and also a irrelevant yeah. at the same time. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty awesome. Such is life. <laughs> <laughs> but it does like it. It if that's if that's the strategy that Wizards is going for. If they're if they're if they're like okay, well we're taking it. And game stores are going to be D&D, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, D&D is role-playing, that's great. Mm-hmm. But then that really, like, what does that do for third-party support, too? Yeah, well, I think it's a good question. I suspect that, that, I suspect that that's not any kind of formal strategy. No. Players, right? no. I mean, I, I really, I don't think that, that there are people at Wizards who are sort of rubbing their hands and thinking, ah, ha, ha, ha. No, no, no. Look no. at how we're not going to, you know, support the, the industry. Um I think it's a fair question, actually, to ask what their marketing strategy is for 4th edition, because if there is, like, a coherent one, I must admit that I can't figure it out. Well, I keep hearing <laughs> stories, legends, if you will. <laughs> Whispered on the wind. Of, uh, of a three-dimensional beholder, and we saw it at Gen Con. They had it at the big announcement. And they've apparently been carting it all around Seattle, like downtown Seattle, like the Sculpture Garden. Because Pike there Place goes Market. Seattle, so goes the and, oh, No, 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 I'm not saying as a, as a, <laughs> it gets better. It's not just that they're carrying around a paper mache beholder, but that they're filming it as they go. Like, so there'll be a bus stop, 
and then there's a beholder standing there and there'll be people standing in line at Starbucks or whatever and there's a beholder there and the idea I think the tag that I heard thrown around is you know D&D is everywhere and so they're they're filming commercials and I, I'm led to believe that those commercials will appear on G4 and mm-hmm. Sci-Fi Channel um, and I have seen a couple of print ads in in um, I can't even remember where but I have seen a couple of print ads so um, there's well, at least I, evidence of a marketing strategy. A, a retailer that I know uh, after GTS was saying, uh, you know, he couldn't believe there wasn't even like a banner at Gamma Trade Show that said, hey, fourth edition is coming. Hooray. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> that he was sort of surprised that even at GTS, like, it still didn't seem like the marketing was really firing on all cylinders. I did hear that, too, around GTS more than once of, of retailers and a couple of distributors being like, we, we still don't get it. We don't understand yeah. what's great about the game other than it's D&D. And right. We f- don't feel like we're in the know. I think that I, I'm, I try to be... Um, there was a long period of time wherein uh, Paizo worked very, very closely with Wizards of the Coast. And during that period of time, I always tried to kind of look at things from Wizards of the Coast perspective. In fact, it was kind of a challenge when we shifted to yeah. all of a sudden start thinking about stuff from Paizo's perspective because I'd been so used to like protecting Wizards of the Coast IP and making mm-hmm. sure that everything would pass the approval meetings and all that kind of stuff. But if I can give Wizards the benefit of the doubt on that particular issue, what I would say is I remember coming to Wizards at 1999 when they were just finishing 3rd edition. And I remember... Jonathan Tweet making changes in late galleys, you know, because he came up with some other rule and having big arguments stale about stuff that was laid out in the books and, you know, and and this sort of constant fear that, oh my God, maybe this isn't going to get done on time. And, and ultimately, it was done on time, but I mean, the pressure there related to the launch of 3rd edition was absurd. It was like unlike anything I've ever seen. And on top of that, Everybody was invested in it, from the marketing people to the to the management and everybody. So if you wanted to so much as, you know, put an article in Polyhedron or something, you would have to have a meeting with eight people and there was a rules council to make sure that you got the rules right. Of course, all that stuff faded away, you know, a couple of years after the core rules were not the big thing. So my sense is that the the, the need to put out the game and to hit the deadlines in order for it to come out on time has really consumed just vast resources within the company. And so things like, you know, the D&D Insider launch or, you know, marketing and Gleamax and that kind of stuff, in a perfect world, the, the launch would have been much better or, you know, much more effective than, than I think subjectively anyway than I think it's been so uh, I suspect that that's all been because everybody all hands on deck everybody mm-hmm. helping out you know it, there's very few things that, that can consume attention like relaunching a major brand and yeah. you know and that's not to say that doing the marketing and stuff isn't a critical yeah. in fact maybe the most critical part of that process but just to try to be sympathetic to no, them sure. for a minute I, I do suspect that um that you know, they're they're everyone over there is pulling long out. Nobody over there is probably slacking, is what I'm trying to say. I, oh, I see. And yeah, some sympathy, stuff. But on the other hand, seems like it's not going to. You know, 
this seems like it's going to be the biggest fundamental change to the D&D rules since original D&D. No, I, you know? well, yeah, and since so, the OD&D became right, like, AD&D. That there's never been a new yeah. edition that's been this different before. Yeah. And that being the case, then, the marketing of it is the most critical, you know, to explain to existing players why are they making the changes and what's good about them and, you know, ideally to also make it so that that the game can be marketed to new players for, hey, you know, this is a fun thing that you can do with your friends and here's what's cool about it. I'd just like to say yeah. that I'm not trying to bring these things up because I'm slagging on Wizards. I right. just thought that it'd be cool to get you guys talking well, about Well, no, it, it is. I mean, I think it's very Instigator. interesting. It's very interesting. And I mean, my background before I came into the RPG industry was in PR. And so yeah. I'm very interested in stuff like messaging. and Right, which is know, why I'm trying yeah, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, pick in your brain. Well, I'm also trying to uh, be as politic as I can about of the topic. Course. And so, I mean... Well, at the end of the day... If you're not an idiot, you want D&D to be successful if you're a role-playing publisher. Yeah, absolutely. Because through D&D, it is the gateway through which role-players come who become your customers. The, 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 the thing that I think is very, 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 very interesting, and, and I don't know if it will work out this way or what, because again, haven't seen the rules. But I think from what I've seen about, you know, about the game, about the rules, about some of the strategy that's going into it, particularly with the emphasis on the online stuff, I think there is a chance that Wizards could publish an edition of D&D that is not embraced wholeheartedly by the existing cohort of D&D players and yet is also a huge financial success for the company. Mm -hmm. So it's weird in a way they may be able to decouple keeping the existing audience super happy and making a successful edition of D&D. Which would be very, very weird. And I'm happy to tell all those people who are caught in the middle that the Pathfinder RPG <laughs> is in open uh-huh. uh, beta playtest right now. It's a free download on And True 20 role, right. role-playing revised edition is in stores the last week of month. So you have plenty of options sorry, if the game man. is not for you. Yes. Well, so there's, I think there's basically three things that could happen. The fourth edition can... Bring along the majority of old players and attract new players. Right, which I would say is the ideal. Right, right, is the ideal. It could split the difference, or it could appeal to neither. So, (laughs) so one of those is not ideal. Yes. (laughs) Well, really, I, I mean, honestly, I think that three of them are. are, I'm sorry, that that split the difference and you know not taking anyone along are both not. Although I do think that that splitting the difference is not necessarily mutually exclusive to having a successful edition of Dungeons & Dragons. I agree. If that makes sense. I agree. Yeah. You know, uh, particularly one of the things that we keep hearing, and, and actually some of the stuff I've seen in the rules kind of make me furrow my eyebrows about this a little bit, but we hear about it, how it's so much simpler and mm-hmm. it's more streamlined and it's easier to play. If all that stuff's true, and if they've created an edition of the game that is legitimately easy for that 12-year-old kid who likes the Lord of the Rings movies and reads the Narnia books or whatever, to pick that thing up and learn it and have fun with it, they will be successful in activating a whole new audience for D&D. Because I'm certain, you know, I can sit in, in Paizo's office and be very happy with the sales of something like Pathfinder, which though I would hope that it appeals to a twelve, like a, a smart twelve-year-old, certainly is meant to appeal to gamers in their twenties and thirties, people who have played the game 
or older. People who've played the game for years and years and years. I mean, we are very fond of some of the traditions, uh, you know, the thematic traditions of the game, and so we use those things um, uh, frequently. Uh, so it's easy for for me to sort of say, you know what, I can make, we can make money selling, you know, 10,000 copies mm -hmm. or 20,000 copies of a book, and we can do quite well uh, selling to that audience. Uh, certainly the people at Wizards must be having meetings, and I'm sure these meetings probably became before the serious design of 4th edition, where they said, what are the challenges for the D&D brand? And one of the biggest challenges, especially if you've got to sustain a, a wholly owned subsidiary of a giant corporation, is that their audience is getting older and older mm -hmm. all the time. The core audience for D&D is not people who started playing in junior high last year. It is people who started playing in junior high in 1980 yeah. and 1984. You know, and in many ways, those are the folks who, who are buying everything, and it's good because they're older, they have more disposable income. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, um, many of them are teaching their kids to play and stuff, but I don't think that's enough. I, I, I don't think that D&D has the kind of pull that it once had among 12-year-olds. And if Wizards can kind of figure out that silver bullet, then they're in great shape. Well, I think a lot of the kids who, in our era would have gravitated to D&D, those kids are playing World of Warcraft. And I think that's a challenge. And I think, again, I think one of the challenges that... that, that uh, and again, I don't know if I've mentioned it yet. I haven't seen the rules. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, the artwork, certainly. Some of the conceits that, that, they've, that they've leaked online about the way the rules work really remind me of a World of Warcraft-type game. And, and I know that... That at least a while ago, the designers were very sensitive about that kind of claim. But I mean, I gotta tell you, it seems obvious to me that World of Warcraft is a significant influence on the new edition of D and D, and I and I think it's frankly disingenuous to to, to claim otherwise, especially since I know how much World of Warcraft the designers of this game play. <laughs> so, um, so the question then is, can they take the best innovations of World of Warcraft? Mm -hmm introduce them in a way that works in the tabletop environment or are what they or in worst case scenario is what they're doing making the board game simply a very slow very boring version right. of World of Warcraft well, with not only bad graphics but with no graphics I I hope that they haven't taken a lot from World of Warcraft because they're never going to beat World of Warcraft I know that's being World of Warcraft that's the thing right? right like the role playing games today like you know we need to emphasize the things that we do better than those games. Right. And that is, you know, the social interactions of getting together with your friends, you know, the human brain of the game master being able to do things that a computer cannot do. You know, like, those are the areas where, where tabletop gaming is a, you know, can provide a, a different and in many ways better experience. You know, but unfortunately for tabletop publishers, right. you know, like, the, the core experience of World of Warcraft, you know, that replicates the core experience of many, many D&D players, right. <laughs> you know, you could go in, you could kill monsters, you could take their stuff, you can level up. And, and you can play anytime you want, mm -hmm. you know, you can still, at least with through the headset, you still talk to your friends, even if you're not all in the same room. Yeah. I mean, it's not, this is a much different conversation now than it was 10 years ago, where you could yes. you could have this exact conversation and we could just be like, well, the computer games require floppy disks. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, uh, and they're all role-playing servers on all MMOs, where people who are more into, you know, the right. role-playing side of things congregate and so one on. One of the things that, that I, that I, 
I think that they may eventually be able to figure out with computers is just how to emulate how to, to emulate the infinite choice that you have at a tabletop game. Mm-hmm. So I remember playing Oblivion, which I thought was a great game on the the uh, the Xbox, and it's not a, a multiplayer game, but you know, great graphics for the most part, as long as you're not looking at the people when they talk to you. And uh, cool story, really enchanting, beautiful By world. Old tabletop game designer Ken Rolston. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. But in the very first level, they start you with basically no weapons or anything, and, and you've got to kind of negotiate your way through this jail or through this sewer kind of thing, and you're walking along, blah, blah, blah. And I remember passing in this little hallway like uh, a hole in the ceiling, which clearly led to the outside, which is where I was trying to go. And it was a graphic just to like explain why there was light in the room or something. But in a tabletop game, I yeah. would have said, oh, I'm going to grab that boulder that I saw in that other room and I'm going to make a pile of boulders mm-hmm. and I'm going to climb out this hole. Well, you'll, I've never seen a game online that is that adaptable to a human's creativity that you would be able to pull something like that off. Yeah. And so, you know, it's the whole... Well, even or you get to the mountain range that forms the border of the world. Well, in a good RPG campaign, there is no border to the world. The, you know, it goes where the player's interests are. And so, until they can kind of solve those issues, that's the area to me where a tabletop game really excels. And of course, in addition to being able to sit around and drink beer and have fun with your friends and what have you. Oh, I was going to say that it, it goes beyond even like really creative stuff. Like I'm going to build a pile of boulders and, and crawl out that hole. Like I don't have any weapon at all, but I can't pick up that rock or right. that branch and use right. it. Right, right, right. Because that's not no, a designated weapon that has right. been and animated. You, right. And you can't whatever. talk to that guy over there who looks interesting because you can't click on him. Right, right. right. He doesn't have that weird blue glow around him that's that says right. he's an interactable character. Or the I mean, bang over his head. <laughs> that's the type of thing as a long-term tabletop player that frustrates me about the about computer yeah. games, and ultimately, it doesn't really frustrate that that doesn't frustrate me that much anymore because it's just okay. Well, that's that's, right. that's the limitation of the computer game. Just like right. I'm not frustrated when I'm playing D and D, and some kind of three dimensional dragon doesn't appear. Right. 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 I mean, it's just that's the that's how it works, uh, at least to date. So, um, well, having a twelve year old myself, yeah, now, yeah, I can totally see where her expectations of the world are really different and she's been steeped in a lot of our nerdery right so she you know she she wanted to watch hellboy for her 12th birthday and the girls were like but we want to watch sleepover you know right. what about the princess diary yeah, yeah yeah we like girly movies um and so even with that you know she's not going to pick up a, a big thick book and try to learn how to you know, she wants to read mangas. She's not reading The Lord of the Rings. You know, this is kind of a challenge for nerd culture across the board because one of the criticisms that I see and that I have perhaps mouthed myself, <laughs> you know, is where did I, where did D and D intersect with my life mm-hmm. before I got into it, or right. when when I was kind of into it, but I hadn't made that lifelong bond where it was going to be my career and you know all right. that. Um, one of the places was on the back of comic books. There, during the 80s, there was a long period of time 
where you had probably about a 40% chance of having a D&D ad on the back of any comic book you could pick up. It was either going to be a D&D ad drawn by Bill Willingham, mm -hmm. you know, uh, of a party going through a little adventure and making it sound really cool, or it was O.J. Simpson pulling on Justin Boots, or it was Meatloaf, you know, telling you to donate to some charity. It was like one of those three <laughs> things was going to be on the back of your comic. And so then, then the thought is, well, like, well, why aren't they, why isn't Wizards advertising D&D on the back of comics? But I'm not sure the comics sell to kids anymore either. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the comic books are now $5 a piece. Yeah. And they're all geared toward people who care about continuity going back to the 80s and stuff like that. And I just don't think kids read comics that much anymore. So w the sort of simple, well, why don't they just repeat what they did in the 80s? Like, it just doesn't work. And right. so to some degree, I think it is an interesting challenge going back to the marketing thing. You know, where if getting 12-year-olds to play the game is your goal, where do you even go these days? Yeah. I mean, I got into D&D &D because I was reading fantasy and science fiction books, right? right. I was reading, you know, Lord of the Rings and the Lensman books and, right. you know, um, Fritz Lieber and Robert E. Howard and stuff like that. And it just felt, it was like a natural progression from, right. like, oh, I've read about these exciting fantasy adventures to I'm having exciting fantasy and, adventures. And, I mean, and the books, the first edition... Uh, DMG yep. in Appendix N, yes. uh, further educational, inspirational reading, <laughs> uh, had a whole list Can of those books. They did. And so even if you got to the game first, as I did, you could use that list. Well, I guess I had read Lord of the Rings and a couple of things, but yeah. you know, I didn't know who Paul Anderson was yeah. or Jack Vance. Well, or I, yeah, I picked up stuff by reading The Giants and the Earth Column. Right, and Dragon. Yeah. But so, so here, as someone who edited Dragon, in the 70s, nobody cared about copyright, so you yeah. could just do a, oh, John Carter, sure, let's stat him up, yeah. you know. You do that today without contacting, say, the Burroughs folks, and they will come down on you. So, so you, that's tougher. Yeah. It's very unlikely that the DMG is going to have a list of books by, you know, Jack Vance and all these things, not only because those books are almost uniformly out of print, but because D&D &D has its own publishing book empire yeah. now, mm -hmm. you know. They're going to say, read the, read the latest El Minister adventure. Right, but I don't even know if they do that, you know. They yeah. certainly didn't in third edition. No, they didn't. Which is weird. But, you know, maybe those novels, which I'm led to believe outsell the role-playing products fairly significantly and certainly cost less to make, maybe that's the way they bring people in. Maybe people encounter the Forgotten Realms novels and then that makes them curious about probably getting the world guide first and then they get the world guide and then they say oh the harpers are cool let's buy the harper but, you know, I don't know maybe that's one yeah. acquisition thing because while the actual RPG sections in big stores seem to be shrinking the RPG book sections mm -hmm. are not shrinking in fact uh, Games Workshop now has a pretty significant fiction Yes, offering and um, and you know Wizards of course has got theirs and other companies you know always seem to be having their own little mini lines of fiction and stuff like that too so so that is one place that seems like a relatively stable uh, section of the of the bookstores well so, I wonder how many people who read D&D &D novels are not D&D &D players I suspect a lot of lapsed players. You know, it was a lot because we with Dragon and Dungeon, we had a lot of subscribers uh, who hadn't played D anD D in ten years. I know, but the Dragon well. was like the last thing that they were willing to give up. It's the last vestige of their hobby, and it gave them an opportunity to always at least keep their finger on it, mm -hmm. so that they could jump back into the game. I actually think that's one of the biggest strategic 
challenges of not having in print Dragon and Dungeon anymore is because all those folks who were still holding on by a thread, mm -hmm. that thread has been cut and um, I don't know, maybe going to a website every so often is better or, or is equal to that, but I, I'm not really sure. Well, you might impulse buy a dragon off a newsstand. Yeah. You're not going to impulse subscribe to something on the internet. Or especially yeah. if you don't know that <laughs> yeah. it exists. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I know when we were at Games Workshop, they talked about how a lot of their novel readers were people who used to play the yeah. Warhammer games, and it was a way for them stay you know, to stay engaged. Yeah, you know, if they still liked the world, but they didn't have time to paint armies or whatever it was, right. you know. They could buy a book about space marines or what have right. you. Well, so IP, people are invested in IP, yep. mm -hmm. and that uh, that could lead us to talk a little bit about IP stuff that we're doing. I think we're both doing um, some system light or system less uh, IP books. Yeah. That, uh, well, that's kind of been the challenge, you know, this last couple of years, not knowing what is, you know, what the, what, you know, what the audience is going to do and what we would be allowed to do going forward. So we actually put out a lot of um, system light products, and, and you guys again kind of led the way with that, you know, with the the Freeport books. But um, we put out a number of books in our Pathfinder Chronicles line, um, the Guide to Corvosa, which is a supplement for the um, Curse of the Crimson Throne Adventure Path, which is the one that's currently going on, um, and it also just works as a city guidebook, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that had I think maybe almost zero rules in it. And uh, I wrote the, with uh, Jason Bowman, our lead designer, wrote the Pathfinder Chronicles Gazetteer, which is a 64-page full-color guide to the world. Um, we're in the process of expanding that into a 256-page hardcover, uh, you know, fully in-depth world guide. And that has, you know, uh, like a feat for each country or what have you. But the goal there is to explain the world and to, you know, provide historical information and adventure ideas and things. Um, and not so much, you know, the stats and, and classes. You're doing that before that the corporate? We're doing it at the same time as we're releasing the beta um, at Gen Con. Okay. So they're both Gen Con releases. In fact, June 13th is the big Paizo Death Day where we've got about seven products that need to go out, you know, so that they'll be yeah. back in time for for Gen Con. So in a certain sense, on June 14th, I get to breathe a sigh of relief, yeah, and, and, and at least until the, the until Gen Con starts. So yeah, we're doing the hardcover um, book, and that actually has been pretty exciting to work on because uh, it's, you know, I kind of developed the broad strokes of the world, you know, and Jason certainly was a, a key partner in that. Um, but, you know, I like to think of it kind of as my world and all that. Mm -hmm. And then when we uh, wanted to put together the book, the, the, the way we went about doing it is we basically said, you know, who would be fun freelancers to work with this, you know, work with us on this. So we've got sections of that book, you know, written by uh, Keith Baker, the Eberron creator, by Ed Greenwood, the Forgotten Realms creator, by Jeff Grubb wrote a part of it, J.D. Weicker wrote a part of it, Sean K. Reynolds wrote a part of it, all the members of the Paizo staff wrote a part of it. So it's really fun to see, you know, after being a guy who would, like, say, take Gary Gygax's work and, like, update Greyhawk stuff, mm -hmm. all of a sudden there are all these people like Jeff Grubb, you know, for example, who I, like, idolize as a kid. In fact, I met Jeff Grubb in 1986 on a book signing tour when mm -hmm. I was... 11 you know and so uh to have him take stuff that i've written 
and then adapt it and kind of make it his own and expand on it. It's like almost like a weird time loop. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's when, yeah, it's like a weird time loop. It's like matter and yeah. antimatter. Oh, we did the uh, Hobby Games, the 100 best book. Yeah. Like the list of people who we got to write essays for that book. You know, I mean, it's like practically a who's who of the game industry for the last 30 years. Yeah. And, you know, people whose games I played when I was 10 or 11 years old, like having them write for a book I was going to publish. You know? It's pretty weird. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and for the, the Pathfinder book, um, not only do we have sort of the established guys, but we also have some newer writers like, um, you know, Christine Schneider, who's the winner of our RPG Superstar contest, oh. which was all, you know, amateur game mm-hmm. designers. Um, and uh, we've got a few other finalists. Clinton Boomer was another finalist, Rob McCreary. All those guys are participating in this project. So it's the you know the best of the old guard people with the best of the new guard people. And then I'm going through and making sure that the, you know, and Mike McCarter, who's editing it, is doing a great job putting it all together, stitching it all together. And then as the only living human who has kind of perfect knowledge of the Pathfinder campaign setting at this point, I'm taking a final pass through it and then making sure that the voice is consistent and that all the facts are right and stuff like that. So you can't get hit by a bus Yeah, no, well, geez. <laughs> I'd like to think I can't get hit by a bus ever. I well, really certainly hope so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that would be, that would be bad. That would be that would lead to some continuity errors, and it's funny because <laughs> it's funny because you know I have long been a huge fan of the world of Greyhawk, which is you know Gary Gygax's campaign setting, and I have been involved with the online fandom for World of Greyhawk and everything since back since basically the first D and D fans crawled on you know, out of the oceans and onto the internet. You know I was I was there talking about this stuff, and so it's weird to think that like little mistakes that we're making in our continuity right now if we do our job right and if you know hope you know yeah. uh knock on wood if people are still playing pathfinder 20 years from now you know you'd like to think oh well, it's just a little error you know no one's going to care but there will probably be if we do a job right again there'll probably be like 30 post in a, internet threads Huge about this wars. in like 2015 about something that you know I mistranscribed at three o'clock in the morning the yeah. night before the product needed to go to the to the the um, to the layout you know so it's funny now to think that the kind of mistakes that Gygax may have made or something where I as a 11 year old all the way up to as a 30 year old would say how could they have done that yeah you know uh that we're doing that now and and i only hope that there are people who aren't born yet who will care about this stuff <laughs> you're you laying know, the ground you know, for well you know uh yeah you know i go over the, anyway. the freeport stuff because freeport's my baby right you know and the uh the pirates got to freeport for the first time actually had a chapter uh on the wider world of freeport which in keeping with the nature of Freeport is optional. You know, you can still take Freeport and drop it into any campaign setting that you like. But if you wanted an attached world, we provided one for the first time. And uh, when we did some of the follow-up books, uh, like Cults of Freeport and Buccaneers of Freeport, some of the freelancers uh, would then use some of the bits from the world in sort of flavoring Mm. up their stuff, you know. But, of course, they weren't in my mind. And so, you know, it was up to me to, you know, in reading the, the Buccaneer section where someone wanted to have a, you know, a mercenary band that came out of the Yurtha Rift for me to be like, 
Mercenary would never come out of the Earth of Rift. Right. It's a horrible place full of monsters. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> don't you didn't, you? didn't you get the subtext that I forgot to put in the? I know. <laughs> Can't you read my mind? Right. You know. right. Yeah. So. That happens to me all the time now with this project, where it's like he didn't get it at all, and then you go back to the beginning of what I actually wrote. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, I it's didn't actually I didn't say that. Say that. Yeah. But the good thing about being the publisher is you get to have it anyway. Yeah. So it's like, well, yeah, that guy didn't read my mind, but since I'm here, I'm going to make it the way I want it to be anyway. That's right. Yeah. Well, Freeport's been an interesting experiments, um, you know, in doing the systemless thing. On the one hand, I'm hugely relieved that we didn't make it a 3.5 book in right. light of subsequent events. Right. Um, and seeing how it has played out with, you know, supporting different rule system, uh, you know, particularly when the first couple companions we did were the, the True 21 and then the D21. Um, and we just recently... Um, published the Savage Worlds uh, PDF, and it's been very interesting seeing the really, uh, you know, rabid Savage World fans, like, once there was that sort of seal of approval that it was cool to do Freeport in the Savage Worlds, like, man, they'd snap that thing up and yeah. be very excited about it, and, you know, they're the first people kind of, I guess, outside of the D20 diaspora, you know, um, who have taken a serious look at Freeport now because there's some rule support right. for it. Um, so that's pretty interesting. And coming up, we've got the Song of Ice and Fire game, and there's uh, the core rule book, uh, which is you know mostly rules. But then there's the campaign guide, and that's really the world book. And there's you know like your Pathfinder book, very little in the way of rules in that book. It's mostly like here's a big chapter about Dorn, and here's a big chapter about you know Starks and whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll be curious to see if people uh, buy that book to use with D&D or Pathfinder or Savage Worlds or whatever if, you know, whether or not they're interested in our new game as well. Whether there's enough yeah. world in there that they'll go, well, whatever, this is just a great world book. Yeah, I mean, I hope uh, that, frankly, a lot of people buy the Pathfinder uh, campaign guide to use with 4th edition. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they're not going to find any Dragonborn in the book, but uh, they can always add them themselves. Yeah. And well, that's the great thing about Freeport is that it's this crossroads just because we haven't right. specifically mentioned Dragonborn doesn't mean they right. can't show Well, yeah, up. and I yeah, actually I specifically <laughs> added several locations in, in the Galarian, which is our uh, our campaign setting. Um, there's several cities where there's you know creatures from other planes mm -hmm. or just weirdness. Basically, my design philosophy for that world was let's think of all the different types of D&D, or I'm sorry, OGL 3.5 games <laughs> that people might want to play yeah. and then let's make sure that there is a, at least one place in the world that fits all of those styles of play. So, you know, there's the courtly intrigue place, there's the you know, the horror area there's, the, there's like three active wars going on, so if you want to do a war campaign we've got you covered. And then of course a couple of those places are, like the crossroads city you know, the, the trading city where everybody mm -hmm. comes, even some people from different planes or whatever we even have different planets that you can do sword and planet style. Uh, yeah, on. I saw you mention, uh, I don't know, well, maybe it was just us talking. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about maybe doing some kind of, you know, Mars type stuff with Pathfinder, and that really raised my interest. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, and I'm sure this is something you've dealt with a lot more than I have, actually, but when you're sitting at basically ground zero of a setting and a whole big publishing project, you can go in any direction you want. And so on the one hand, right now especially, I'm very interested in like 
1930s science fiction. So, like, I'm super... I would love to mm-hmm. put together a Red Planet book, you know, uh, that allows you to do all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, a la uh, John Carter of Mars, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Lynn Carter, Lee Brackett, all that kind of stuff. Um, so what I can do is I can mention that there is a Red Planet in our world, and we can get to that eventually. Yeah. The temptation is to... Oh, yeah, let's put that on the schedule, but I don't yeah, know if I might yeah. be the only lunatic... You know, I guess at least two lunatics are interested <laughs> in that idea. So. Yeah. Well, that's always the thing is, you know, there's stuff that you think would be awesome, and they have to weigh it against, would anyone else ever want to buy this? Right. You know? Like, for years, I've wanted to do the... The role-playing game of, of you know Napoleonic adventure where you right, know, that'd be great. you're running around in, in France, in Egypt. And, that's you know, where you got to yeah, do it. You know, but I don't think that I could sell enough <laughs> that it would you know justify me doing it. No, so, and so uh, I I've I have not thought that in particular. But for Galarian, one of the things I did is. Uh, I knew I wanted in ancient Egypt because pyramids are cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody liked the the Pharaoh module and you know everything from back in the day. And, um, and but Egyptian I, adventures Hamun. and Hamunaptra Egyptian <laughs> adventures exactly. Uh, but I didn't want to just kind of do okay. This is just straight lifted ancient Egypt yeah. because as interesting as ancient Egypt at its prime is to to me. You don't have that sense of familiarity that I think you almost need to have a successful gaming campaign and certainly to have a successful gaming product. I mean, just as an example, you could create a a role-playing game that is based purely on the culture of Vietnam or something. You know, the the mythology Mm -hmm. and culture of Vietnam. But because your customers are largely people who have never been to Vietnam and don't have any kind of connection to that, they are not as easily able to work on the fly as they would with some more Western tradition stuff. Oh, we and know, frankly, because we did Mind Shadows. Right, which yeah. was, right. You know, inspired by Southeast Asian mythology. And which was, it was really it was cool. cool. Right, <laughs> but it turns out it's irrelevant how cool it is yeah. because the, the core audience is not looking for that. Now, you may build up a lot of credibility with customers you really want by doing some of that funky stuff. But I think it's very difficult. All, nine times out of ten, in fact, 98 times out of 100, a book that's white guys on horses fighting demons is going to sell better than a book uh-huh. like that. Yeah. And, um, well, the place we thought that it might have a win was that it was designed to really feature psionics uh, right. from the get-go, right. whereas most settings, psionics is like this thing that was added later, right. and it never feels really organic to the setting. And uh, so, unfortunately, the way that Mind Shadows fell, uh, it came out, it was one of the early 3.5 products we did, but the psionics rules for 3.5 weren't done. And yeah. so uh, it was this weird oh, fun. Yeah, yeah. situation to be in. So what I did, coming back to Egypt, is figuring, as interesting as ancient Egypt is, that our audience does not have doctorates in it, and I don't have the space to do so, something maybe akin to Hamanoptra, which is a huge, thick box set. Yeah. I said, well, why not have Egypt, basically, that is more akin to in the time of Napoleon, you know, when they mm-hmm. were discovering the Rosetta Stone and mm-hmm. when they were really uncovering the Sphinx and the different pyramids and things like that. And that idea struck me as inherently more akin to Dungeons and Dragons, you know, tomb raiding, yeah, yeah. really raping a culture of its uh, of its treasure. Um, you know, and, and, and you can get away... Once you've gotten people into that element, 
the traditional, understandable foreigners coming to town to do D&D stuff, then if we need to do a source book or something on Assyrian, which is the name of our Egypt country, then we can get into some of the cultural yeah. stuff like that. We did that in Tomb of the Pharaohs module. In Tomb of the Pharaohs is yeah. the first module that we did. And it was actually, uh, I don't know how Hamanapja did for you guys, but the Tomb of the Pharaohs is a very popular module. People really... I was I thought that was a risk, you know. I was a little mm-hmm. like eh. I kind of put it in. I, I've got a red planet module that is always sort of perpetually hovering yeah. on the edge of our schedule, and um, I thought that the that the Egyptian module was kind of in the same boat, you know, that it was going to be a bit of a challenge. But it's our it's our best selling module to well, date. So I'm not sure did pretty well. I I had hoped it would kind of uh, do great because. We, we chose to try the box set format yeah. because I have such fond memories of, of the old box sets and you know, there's things that you can do with a box set that you can't do with one book like you can have a player's book that then you know the GM could just hand that to the players right. and be like make characters with this and he can keep all the secrets to himself you can put a map in the box you know and so I was excited to do a product like that but it didn't seem to help it sell any better than other D20 stuff we had coming out in that era. And so, it was more expensive. And it was more expensive. And it was harder to store. Yeah. And it got damaged more easily. I mean, yeah. the boxes are pain yeah. in the Yeah, you're a downer, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm just saying, because we did a box set, too, with yeah. the, the Game Mastery Treasure Chest, and it was a little bit different because that was a lot of existing product that we basically printed a box for, and if you wanted to kind of get a sampler of our accessories. But it was it's a huge pain in the butt. Well, and we we had that advice from distributors too. They yeah. were like, okay, you know, go go into it with the understanding that it gets damaged more often right. and it's harder to start. Wasn't that also at the same time as Osseum was flaming out? Yeah, yeah. How, how we printed the box set and then a couple of big hardbacks. Oh, and yeah. So I'm sure that that didn't help yeah, us so, any. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But anyway, if there are cool Egyptian monsters and all that kind of stuff yeah. in there people who are interested in playing an Osirian campaign in Pathfinder, that is one of the few high-quality resources available right now for that type of stuff. So Hamanapja, I would strongly suggest uh, people check that out. In 2008, because after 2008... Yeah, and and the clock is running. (laughs) You should do a podcast where you just go through your entire back catalog Mm -hmm. and spend two minutes talking about why people should buy each product before they still can. Well, you know, what's interesting is that um, we were filling mail orders uh, the other day, and and I filled the order for the very last copy of the Book of Fiends. Because oh my god! It's been sold out on distributor level for a long time, but right. we've had some right. that we sell direct and mail order. But it's gone. It's gone. That's yeah. interesting. That is a book that we use frequently in Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Book of Fiends and uh, the Tome of Horrors, of course, which mm-hmm. is, is an awesome resource and almost shocking wellspring of D and D continuity. <laughs> Wizard's error is on. <laughs> <laughs> Those I would say those two books are the ones that we that we reference in our section 15s most mm-hmm. often. And yeah, if you well understood that sentence, then you really care about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it still sells great as a PDF. Too. Yeah, yeah. Are you gonna have to go in and strip all your D20 logos off of all your PDFs? That'll be. Yeah. Fun. Well, it's a lot easier to do that. I mean, it's not like we're gonna go, uh, you know, reprint the Cavalier's Handbook or something at this point. But right. you know, we can pull the D20 logo out of the PDFs and continue to sell cool. them that way. So. Great. Or perhaps as Pathfinder products. <laughs> hey, how about that? We're, we're working on the logo now. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been pondering whether we should we should create a brand f- 
for our old stuff that's like classic three or something right, like that. Right. You know, just so there's a unified like Green Bernine brand that basically means, yeah, this is, you know, third edition stuff. Well, I mean, I, I, I suspect that some of that back stock on the PDFs does very well for you guys. It does. I mean, it does. There are definitely people still playing uh, 3.0 yeah. and 3.5. I mean, clearly there are. There's actually certain books that, you know, sort of got, as print products kind of got lost in the shuffle, yeah. but have sold really well as PDFs, like Eternal Rome. Like, when that came out in print, you know, it kind of came and went. People didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but it's been a strong PDF seller. I think there's a period there, you know, kind of you know, they call it the glut, you know, the D20 yeah. glut or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, the fact is that there's just a ton of companies publishing a crap ton of products, some yeah. of which was horrible, some of which was great. Yeah. It was very easy for products to get lost in the shuffle there in 2004 mm-hmm. or so, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it's not, it doesn't surprise me much that when someone's looking at, say, a green running back catalog, not knowing what, when the products particularly came out, but just judging it on, is this an interesting topic? Would this fit with my campaign? Um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Well, one of the beauties of, of the PDF stuff is that you know you can shop for PDFs whenever you want. Right. You can sort things online, mm-hmm. and and our entire PDF catalog is always available. Whereas right. when you go into a game store, you know if you're looking for Eternal Rome, you go to a game store. They might have it. Right. They probably won't. You know, so you, you might. Know, actually, I, I was uh, noticing in the last uh, month or so maybe just a little over a month, uh, we have seen uh, an uptick in our back catalog of D20. Mm -hmm. Stuff like going back to Cavalier's Handbook and Eternal Rome and that era of stuff at the distributor level, not just direct sales. Which, you know, we haven't seen action on those titles broadly at the distributor level for a long time. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, people, some companies have done, like, complete your collection sales, which sounds a little cynical, but um, unlike, I think, the end of second edition um, with third edition, it seems like some people do actually want to complete their collection. Well, and and unlike the end of second edition, it does seem like some people do want to keep playing third edition. You know, there was, I think there was obviously trepidation, and there was obviously the... You know, th- there were a slew of sacred cows who died in the second to third transition, and there were people who were uptight about it, and people who said, it was too much like a video game, mm-hmm. or, you know. So, I mean, we did see that before. But one, I think one of the major, major, major differences, if not the most important difference between then and now, is that there is not widespread agreement on behalf of the players that third edition sucks. Right. As there was, you know, or that they, they wanted. There's one other major difference, I think, and and I don't know all of the implications of it, but I'm certainly um, very familiar with some of the implications of it, and that is that the internet is a bit much much bigger yeah. deal now than it was even in 1999. I don't want to make it sound like the internet wasn't a big deal in 1999 because of course it was, and yeah. EN World was a huge thing, but just in terms of online sales Mm -hmm. and uh, online communities and, you know, uh, know, live journal. There's just a lot of stuff that didn't exist back then that does exist. I think another major difference that I was going to mention before um, is that uh, when the transition between second and third edition um, no one was continuing to publish second edition products right. after third edition came out. Yeah, there is that. And, and now, you know, in fact, there's a major publisher who's yeah. going to be publishing 3.5 products. Yep. And so, you know, and others. I mean, you know, there's uh, other companies who've said that they 
uh, at least for the time being, are not going to switch over either. And so they're actually, it's not that, you know, gamers have this thing about games being dead, where, like, psychologically they, they can't get behind games that they perceive aren't being supported anymore. Um, and in previous editions of D&D, clearly TSR and then Wizards was not going to continue to write right. first edition modules or whatever it was. But, you know, now... Um, hell, there are people publishing first edition stuff with that Osric uh, right. license, and you know, um, their support for which again owes itself to the OGL. From what I understand, yes, so it does. Um, so yes, it's quite interesting. Yes, it is quite interesting. We live in interesting times, we as do. they say. As Eric Noah recently said, "There's never been a better time not to switch." <laughs> <laughs> did Eric Noah say? He that? did. Yeah, oh, that's nice. the EN and EN world. You gonna put that on your back cover? Um, uh, I'm going to put it on the front card. <laughs> no, uh, no. So I think we're going to wrap this up now. Uh, thanks for coming back on the show, Eric. Hey, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, being my co-host, Nicole. Anytime. Uh, and we'll be back uh, next time to uh, get into convention season because uh, it's a uh, time where Origins and Gen Con is approaching and We've got a lot of stuff on deck, uh, wild cards from Mutants and Masterminds. We're launching the Song of Ice and Fire game, so we'll be having plenty more to say about those things. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is copyright 2008, Green Renine Publishing, music by Bombscare, courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.